Welcome to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we're speaking with the author of the book, Civic Hope, How Ordinary Americans Keep Democracy Alive, the uh, professor of communications at University of Texas, Austin, Roderick Hart. Thanks so much for being on the show. Glad to be here, Bill. Now, this is a, a fascinating premise for a book. You have reviewed... 10,000 letters to the editor in 12 cities going back to 1948 all the way to the present. Uh, What compels you to take on this project? Well, that's a good question. It it was a large project. Uh, But, you know, um, it it started with a simple question, which was, uh, I wonder what the American people have been thinking about politics over time, and whether or not their thinking has changed over the years. And so it started from that very simple premise. Uh, and then I asked to ask myself, well, where would I be able to find what people felt about American politics uh, over such a long period of time? Um, and uh, I wound up realizing that about the only place I could look would be letters to the editor uh, that would still be uh, in existence. And so what I really have done is tried to create a history of uh, American politics through the eyes of ordinary folks <clears throat> during my lifetime. And in doing so, do you feel like you saw, uh, are, are letters really a cross-section of what ordinary people are thinking, or is there a skew uh, of the kind of person who would write a letter to the editor? Uh, it's a good question, and it's one that I <clears throat> spent a great deal of time trying to find an answer for. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about how I went about it, because if you uh, submitted a letter to the New York Times, um, the chances of it getting accepted, you know, maybe one in a, a thousand. Uh, and it probably would be a function of uh, how well you wrote and whether or not the editors at the Times uh, thought well of the letter. Uh, in my case, uh, knowing that there was that kind of uh, gatekeeping bias, uh, I, I chose 12 small cities in the country, averaging about 75 to 100,000 people. And these, uh, these newspapers in those cities, they publish pretty much everything that is submitted. I've uh, done surveys of the editors, and they take about uh, 90% of the letters that are submitted. So there's really no, uh, there's really no, uh, gatekeeper that's keeping it out. So that was a good, a good decision, I think. And the second thing is, well, how do letter writers, aren't they, they're kind of cantankerous and don't they, aren't they sort of a unique uh, quality? And so we've done a lot of surveys. And what we find is that, uh, at least in the 12 cities that I looked at, the people who write letters are uh, slightly older than the average uh, in, in the survey by, by a couple of years. They've lived in the town longer, and most importantly, they care a lot more about politics. And so are they representative? I don't use that term. I use the term ordinary. And if you, you read the book, if you read the letters that are in the book, um, you can tell that these folks are really quite ordinary people who have uh, a lot of the ideas that people hear about uh, when they go to the store and go to church and um, go to the ball game. Now, the book is titled Civic Hope. It is a hopeful book. It's a book about how ordinary people contribute 
to democracy. But as you mentioned, letter writers have a cantankerous reputation. With Considering all the books that are out these days about how democracy is dying, you might think a review of letter writers would be evidence of how uh, everything is doomed. So what is it about letter writing, about letter writers, uh, lead you to find hope and optimism in the state of American democracy? <clears throat> well, um, let me, um, I'm going to key on your last part of your question. And that is the distinction between hope and optimism. And for me, they're very different things. You know, when you think about optimism, you think about people with a smile on their face and uh, things are just going to get better tomorrow. And you think about, a, you know, an eight-year-old girl with a lollipop. And, and that's, that's optimism. Hope is a very different matter. Hope, people who are hopeful oftentimes do not have a smile on their face. Hope is the, is the feeling, the understanding that things are going to get better if we can solve the problems we've got now. And it's that sense of hope that keeps people going through the hard times. So the people that are writing these letters are in almost all cases complaining about something. But what I find hopeful about them is A, they're complaining, and B, they're doing it publicly with other people. And they're trying to, thirdly, they're trying to engage other people in a conversation to change things. And for me, that's what civic hope is about. I think the strength of um, the value of of the American democracy lies not in its strengths, and we have many strengths, but really it lies in its weaknesses and in the willingness of the people of the nation to keep working on those weaknesses until they become strengths. It's that is what civic hope is about. Uh, And if you think about uh, freedom of speech or the right to bear arms, uh, we think of them as, well, aren't these wonderful qualities? Well, in fact, they have been debated from the time they started. When sh- who should be able to speak? When should they be able to speak? In a crowded theater? Not so much. What about the right to bear arms? We have, and continue to this very day, unfortunately, to, to wrestle with these sorts of issues. And so really, it's, it's, the, it's the willingness to try to debate and and find solutions to these very tough problems. That's where civic hope lies. Now, you speak in the book about the importance of sustaining a culture of argument. And, and you just in your last answer, you talked about publicly complaining and being part of a, of a dialogue. Uh, letter writing strikes me as being kind of one-sided. You're just one person popping off and not really absorbing what the other side has to say. So h- how does h- how does letter writing uh, as part of public discourse help sustain a culture of argument? And what do you mean by a culture of argument? Let start, me start at that point and go from there. Well, you know, I think, a, you know, a culture of argument is one that, um, well, that basically, number one, it respects uh People's differences. It, it understands that not everybody is on the same page, and that in fact, um, if it's a culture of argument, means that even though I know that that uh, you, Bill, are in the wrong, I'm going to let you have your say, and then when you finish, I'm going to let you. The truth is, it's that that the respect to have a uh, an argument, even a knockdown and drag out argument, uh, that's to me is what we have to build culturally, and so. In some points, yes, it is. It is. Uh, it's it's one sided in the sense that the person writes a letter. But if you you look at most of the research 
people find that uh, letters to the editor are usually about the third or fourth most read things in a newspaper. People read the uh, front page first, they go to the sports page next, and then it's usually a, it's a case, it's a, a, a contest between the obituaries and letters to the editor. Those are the three or four most read things in, in most newspapers. Now, people read lots of other things as well, but you can always count that people are there. And so with letters to the editor, why is it that people are drawn to them? And I think the answer is people sense that there are people like themselves who are writing these letters and they might read them and they say, what a dope this fellow is or what a jerk this uh, this woman is for having those kind of opinions. But it's, again, whether or not that letter has caused people to rethink their thoughts or uh, talk to somebody else about the silly letter that they read, to me, that's what keep that chain or that cycle, that circle of communication is what makes a healthy democracy. Now, newspapers are dying. Print is dying. A lot of media is shifting to the online space. Um, you know, you looked at letters the editor going back from 1948 to the present, but you know, in 10 years from now, there'll probably be a lot fewer places for letters of the editor, but there's a whole lot of people expressing their views on Facebook and on Twitter. So is that just going to be the same thing? Um, people are going to share their views there and, and we'll have that, uh, that civic dialogue in that space, or is there a difference in the, in those forms of communication? I think that's a, <clears throat> that's a great question. And I think it's something that is, uh, we're going to have to wait and see what happens. One of the things about about uh, my book is that it looks at letters in in um, these twelve communities, and I've visited these communities on a number of occasions, and I've talked to the letter writers, I've talked to average citizens, I've talked to the people in the newspapers, um, and the people who write letters to the editor live in specific places, in in specific geographical locations. And so when they write a letter, they're writing it to people that they may well uh, meet at the corner store or at the gas station or at the uh, Little League field. Um, now we have a new situation, right? On the online situation. Um, many times uh, you look at comment strings uh, that oftentimes are really quite vile, uh, but they're also usually anonymous. And so that's a very worrisome aspect. Um, People who write, who uh, submit to comments uh, at the end of a newspaper and don't and don't put their uh, online newspaper, don't add their name. That's a very different kind of person. Um, I think Facebook is interesting because people people know who you are and that there's a kind of uh, uh, cordoning off function. People are much more aware of what values and points of view they're going to share. And so I think that may be a way of, of getting it done. Certainly Twitter will be. I think the other part of the question, though, is how individual – we all live somewhere in some physical space, some location. How will people keep in touch with other people who live in those spaces? Um, and I think that's that's to me, is a really important – because democracy lives somewhere as well. Uh, and so we're going to have to see how – whether or not these new online fora are, are able to uh, take the space of what used to be letters to the editor. There, there's so much consternation about polarization in American politics. 
Um, people are increasingly vitriolic. They're they're not having dialogue. They're having these one sided conversations. They only they only go to media where they hear things that they want to hear, and they're not hearing the other side. Uh, so, you know, wh- where is the hope in that dynamic? I mean, is it, is there something that that you're finding in your research that says, you know what, this back and forth that we're having, sure, it seems nasty, but it actually it actually is useful for a long-term culture of argument or are, are we losing our ability to have a robust argument where we do, where we do hear both sides? Uh, well, I think that's a, that's also a, a, a terrific question and one that I don't think we can completely answer at the moment. Um, I think you have to make at least one distinction that is between how people uh, that you and I know that live somewhere um, that uh, back out of their driveway every day and go to work, uh, that those communities in which we all live and how those people uh, interact with one another. And then there's the, the virtual world, the online world, the televisual world, which, is a, which are really very different kinds of worlds. If you look at cable news where everybody screams at one another, you know, that's part of democracy as well, um, but it may not be the best part of democracy. Uh, and so I think what's going to what we need to keep in mind is that democracy and conversation and argument happens at multiple levels in multiple locations. Um, for me, if people in individual communities in the country are engaged in the issues that that they care about and that are going to city council meetings and having their say or signing petitions, um, engaging in uh, some kind of um, uh, activist uh, politics, whichever is left or right. To me, that's where the the heart and soul of democracy is. I think it's less clear what, in the long run, how much we are going to be advancing the the mass media, the ones that everybody tunes into, uh, because I think those are the ones where there's so much polarization um, that it's turning people it's turning people away. Uh, so that's why, to me, I keep coming back to the fact that we have to pay attention to that for sure. We also have to pay special attention to how people in communities in the United States are, and people in those communities are interacting with each other on a day-to-day basis. And when I, when I hear those people talking, I'm, I'm far more hopeful than I am when I tune into Fox News or uh, MSNBC. So you were, you reviewed letters over a seventy year period. Uh, are there ways in which letter writing has changed over that time, and are there ways that are, are there common themes that don't change over that time? Yes, uh, <clears throat> there are a number of as you might expect over such a long period of time. Uh, and these letters were we looked at them. They they were letters produced. Um, in the fall of the presidential elections. And so all of these were, the letters were, were about the political uh, community in which they lived and, and how that, those communities were reacting to the, uh, the uh, 1948, 1952, 1956, to present uh, presidential elections. Um, and I think those, uh, as we looked at them over time, and we did a really careful kind of coding analysis of them, two things uh, stood out that have changed. One is that people tend to, uh, in 
modern times, they tend to refer less often to the kind of basic principles of, of democracy. Um, you think of the Constitution and Declaration and uh, Bill of Rights, those fundamental values, they don't mention them as often uh, in their letters today. And what's replaced them, I think unfortunately so, is a lot more commentary about the personalities of the politicians who are running their state or city or, 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 or nation. Um, and so rather than, so there's been less talk in recent years about core values and much more talk about political personalities. And I find that a very unsettling and unfortunate trend. The second thing, it's also unfortunate. We, um, we also looked at and coded whether or not people could uh, represent what their opponents were saying. And we found that over time, people tended to refer uh, less often to specifically what their, what their um, uh, opponents had in mind. So, for example, if, if, um, if I say, well, you know, I think that Bill Scher is, you know, he believes that we ought to uh, give a lot more money to uh, Proposition A, and he thinks that's going to ultimately save us uh, a lot as a community. I completely disagree with that. Well, that, that little example that I just used at least brings you into the conversation. It's my attempt to say, I know what your point of view is, and I disagree with it. That quality, that ability, what we call oppositional literacy, the ability to speak what the other person is saying and then to disagree with it, that has gone down. So a lot of the letters are much more one-sided today. They might say, well, Bill, Chair, you can't trust anything he says. Now, here's what you really got to believe. Um, and so what we're finding is that there's people are much less give um, much less evidence that they know what their op what their opponents are are thinking and feeling, and that to me is a is a worrisome sign. Is there any? Did you pick up anything um, ideological uh, over time? Uh, I mean, there's always been there's always been a far left, there's always been a far right, there's always been a middle. Uh, you know, there are people who are you know diehard Trumpers today, just as much there were diehard Nixonites in the '70s or John Birchers in the '50s. Uh, can you track, does the ideological patterns remain the same over the 70 year period? Um, or do you see an ideological gulf that forms? Is, is, people seem to assume we're sort of losing the center today in politics, but, uh, can you, can you discern that when you look at this, these letter writings over the past several decades? Yeah, I think that's one of the, it's a, it's a great question. And one of the, it was to me, one of the more hopeful aspects of the project is, um, you tend to find uh, three kinds of letters. Um, one, where the person is taking a very progressive or liberal position. A second, that is taking a much more conservative position. But uh, there's a robust group of people that are trying, who feel that they have, they're empowered to tell you uh, that both left and right are wrong and you've got to go through this center and, and it may again be that these 12 cities where people have to be aware, they're, they're so aware that people have disagreements about things. Uh, the, uh, so there's a lot of people, and I tend to call them community tenders. Uh, they tend the community. They lay out, here's what the left thinks, here's what the right thinks. 
But here's here's the middle here's the middle road. Those middle of the rotors are still quite robust across all of the years, um, and as are people from the left and the right. Uh, but there really were three three groups of people, and those three groups tended to be um, present throughout all of the period of time that that, that we did the study. Is there? I've noticed in some letters, letter writing sometimes is a venue to spread information which is not true. There's no, you know, editor editorial pages tend not to fact check letters, um, and so things you might hear from another source, whether it's on a, a TV network pundit or some online source, filter down. To the letters page, and then be, and then almost have an extra letter of le- level of credibility because your neighbor said it, uh, and so maybe it must be true if your neighbor said it. it. Is that a concern that you have with letter writing um, that it's it's it can spread false information, or is that an overblown concern? Uh, <clears throat> well, I think it is an overblown concern, at least for the people who read the same kinds of things on a consistent basis because one of the wonderful things about people who write letters to the editor, letters to the editor are, as a group, are self-correcting because if you write a letter to the editor and say that that um, we need to you know, launch a, a new expedition to Mars, uh, I'll write in tomorrow and say, this guy, Bill, is crazy. We don't need to spend more money on, on the space program. What has it given us other than Teflon? So you find this kind of self-correction as the letter writers interact with one another. Um, so, I, again, for people who might have read one letter and then said, oh, my gosh, I guess we should be going to Mars, and, and don't read the response. But most people, again, that's why I picked these communities. Most people who live somewhere read the same paper on a consistent basis. And so you, you can see over time that they interact with one another. It's delayed. It's not immediate. I write, you write the letter on Monday. I respond to you on Thursday. But again, for people who live in the same community, um, the letters tend to, tend to uh, correct one another. And again, I think that's what a culture of argument is supposed to be doing. Now, uh, you actually track down some of the letter writers that, of letters that you read from from several decades ago is that correct? I did, yes. And, and what was so? How many people did you find, and, and and what was the experience like showing them the letters that they wrote when they were much younger? That was one of the most uh, and uh, one of the most enjoyable and really heartwarming aspects. We we found um, uh, some letters that were written by really young people. In, in fact, one. A twelve-year-old, a twelve-year-old girl in Trenton, New Jersey, and um, we found a, a another fifteen-year-old and a, and a and a young man who was just finishing high school, uh, and they were writing in the in the nineteen fifties. And I thought, I was just touched by the fact that these were young people who had, you know, gotten the courage to write a letter to the local local newspaper. Um, and so we, uh, I was able to find about four or five of these people, uh, and I uh, tracked them down. That one of the wonderful things about uh, about the internet, uh, and I interviewed them. Uh, and of course, in most, in all cases, they were completely shocked. They had very little memory of having written a letter, and I sent them the letter, and then they they reflected back on it. In, in one case, the uh, 
a woman was in her mid-70s, uh, and I showed her the letter she had written when she was 12 years old. And it was a lovely letter. It was a letter in which she um, uh, she said, you know, this is 1952, and she said, I, I don't know why people are so uh, negative about uh, Dwight Eisenhower running for president, uh, while George Washington was a general, and he was a great president. So I feel confident that Mr. Eisenhower will, will be as well. Um, so I contacted this woman. Her name was Irma Decker, and, and at that time she had moved to Florida, had this wonderful conversation with her, uh, and she was very touched. And I said, can you tell me, you know, why did you write the letter? And she said, well, she, she had two of her uncles had been away in the war, and they had both come home. Uh, and she felt that you know, White Eisenhower had, had protected them. Uh, and so she wrote, again, at the age of 12, uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to, to endorse uh, White Eisenhower for president in 1952. Um, and, and so I asked her if she were, you know, continued to follow, uh, follow politics. And so it was, a, it was a lovely, wonderful. And so we did this with up. About four or five people we were able to track down over a long period of time, and it was really revealing as they as they reflected about how that young person in them had changed over time and and what they did. And one young man who was 16 when he wrote the letter uh, um, opposed to the war in Vietnam, uh, and who later became a Quaker um, and uh, a very virulent anti-war activist. Uh, so that was uh, that was really a joy. Joyful part of the, the project. Oh, we're talking with Roderick Hart, author of Civic Hope, How Ordinary Americans Keep Democracy Alive, published by Cambridge University Press here on New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. Uh, a, a lot of people might look at the letters page and view it as a uh, almost like a cesspool. I mean, people might say things that are raw and bigoted and, and divisive and feel worse about their neighborhoods and their and the, and their country uh, because of it. And, you know, because the Trump presidency has been so divisive, people are arguably getting more and more um, brazen about the things that they will say. Uh, why should people uh, look at the letters page and think differently and think more positively that, that, that people – are that the engagement itself is worthy of praise, regardless of what the content of the letter says. <clears throat> They'll be, I think it's because they have no choice. They chose to live in a democracy. Um, if they wanted, if they wanted everything settled uh, uh, in their in their worlds, if they wanted the world not to change, if they wanted there to be no disagreement or lack of um, uh, or complete, if they wanted complete uniformity. There are a lot of other political systems in the world that would accommodate them. Uh, autocracies will do, theocracies will do, um, but but democracy is a different is, is a different animal. Uh, it's designed not to make you feel all that comfortable. What it's designed to do is to adhere to a set of really basic principles uh, uh, about freedom, about about the rights to uh, uh, to own a home, to, to to not be intruded upon. Uh, or to participate in a, in a large and boisterous conversation. Democracy is, is hard work. Uh, and when you put it at a scale like it is in the United States with over 300 million people, it's very hard work indeed. And so the question one has to ask is, 
are you willing to pay the price of democracy, which is you're going to live around people and with people who don't necessarily feel exactly the way you do about everything? Uh, do you want to live in that kind of a society? And if you do, you're going to have to, I think in the, in the best of all worlds, you're going to have to put an oar in the water. You're going to have to become part of that. You're going to have to listen to people who don't agree with you. And you're going to have to be able to have an argument to sustain uh, when you have a when you have a conversation. And if you can't make a good reaction to the argument, maybe you ought to rethink your position. That's what democracy requires. Um, and it's not it's not meant to be to be easy um, or else we wouldn't provide so many freedoms uh, that that democracy uh, provides. Uh, you made a reference earlier to a theme in the book, uh, oppositional literacy. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more? And and is there do you have a fear that we are becoming more oppositionally illiterate over time? You know, I do. Uh, and, and what I mean by oppositional literacy is that is uh, I teach at, at, at the University of Texas at Austin and we have a, a notorious rivalry uh, with the uh, University of Oklahoma. Uh, and we we duke it out every year at the, uh, the Red River uh, rivalry in, in Dallas. Um, and so one of the things that I've got to do if I'm going to be a, a, a decent fan is I better I'd better know what uh, what the Oklahoma team is 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 doing. I better understand the way they put their plays together. I could just go to Dallas each year and run my offense if I'm at the University of Texas. But if I haven't studied the opposition, if I don't know what they're doing, I'm going to put my team in a pretty in a pretty bad situation. And so it is for the health of my team, I'd better know everything I can possibly know about the Oklahoma offense and the Oklahoma defense. That's oppositional literacy. So take that analogy and say, if I'm going to be part of a conversation, um, I'd better know not just generally, but specifically what my opponent is about. Why, why do they not agree with me about how we should deal with these tra- gun-related uh, tragedies in, in public schools? Um, if, I want to, if I want to outlaw certain kinds of firearms, um, I'd better understand why the people who are the strong Second Amendment people, why they are so opposed. And, and if I just simply say, well, there are a bunch of idiots, um, that's not that's not going to a it's not going to produce a very good conversation and it's also probably not going to solve a problem for me to engage that conversation I'd better know as much as I can about why Second Amendment devotees feel so powerfully about it before I can put forth a more progressive or liberal uh, alternative uh, for uh, for doing things um, and so oppositional literacy to me is 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 terribly, terribly important for, uh, for keeping a society in touch with one another, uh, even though um, I may not want to know very much about the University of Oklahoma, but if I'm going to have a contest with them, I darn well better know as much as I possibly can. Now, as positive as you're being about uh, letters, the editor and letter writers themselves, you do have a chapter in the book called Why Letters Are Irritating. <laughs> so it, I guess in the spirit of oppositional literacy, uh, what do you understand about uh, the negative things people often have about letters? Well, you know, they um, <clears throat> we found that, you know, compared uh, compared to other kinds of forms, uh, 
they uh, they refer to themselves a lot more often, which you uh, uh, they they let you know the, who they are and what they what their background is, and they so they they, they kind of a little they pontificate a lot. Um, they're also much more uh, assured in their in their uh, perspectives than a lot of times I think they probably should be. And so they they talk about themselves. They talk about their point of view. They oftentimes will dismiss people who have other points uh, other points of view. Sometimes they're very very provincial. They don't take a large cosmopolitan look at things. They 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 only refer to things that that are that are affecting people in their specific neighborhood. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you read these things and you might say, well, who, who gave this person the, uh, the, uh, the right to play God? And so they, 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 they are irritating in that, in the ways that people are when they take a, a position on things and want to tell the world about it. Uh, who who uh, a lot of people want to say when they read some of these letters? Well, they appointed themselves. And, um, and I, to me, that's just one of the one of the delightful aspects of, of these wonderful people who write these letters, who take the time. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we did is we interviewed about 50, did in-depth interviews with about 50 of these letter writers. And uh, to me, that was one of the most enjoyable parts of the project. And the people, um, uh, we, it was interesting. Uh, we talked to a number of them, and one of the questions we asked is, well, do you think your letters are, are having an effect? And I remember this one woman, and, and she said, oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, in fact, I, uh, I regularly write letters, and I, oftentimes I will see a, a member of the city council or, or the mayor at a, at a social event, and they'll come up to me and say, well, I read your letter, uh, Margaret, and, um, and I was very impressed with it. So, yes, I'm having a great impact. So we heard some of the letter writers would say that. Uh, but a number of them, I remember one guy in particular we asked the question, uh, well, do you think your letters are having a, an effect? And there was this kind of a long silence on the phone. And he said, well, gee, I never, I never thought about that. I, I really don't know. I, you know, I don't know if it, but I really don't care. I've got to do it anyway. And I just, you know, so we found this, uh, this wonderful variety of, of people about why they were doing what they were doing. Um, and um, it was kind of a, a rich, uh, a richness of uh, Americana there. Uh, so, the overarching theme of the book is that there is uh, th- that our that our civic hope rests on these people who get engaged in this way and don't sit on the sidelines of democracy. Yet, these are generally a group of people that strongly disagree with each other and. Uh, it certainly in recent years can't seem to have can't seem to elect people who agree with each other uh, in Congress can't seem to have the same philosophy in their president from, you know, two terms of the next two terms. Uh, is there any, is there a tie that binds as you, as you go through the 70 years of letter writing? Uh, is there some, is there some kind of American spirit that you can trace in their engagement, or are we just sort of uh, to be to be negative about it, doomed to be in these separate camps and to 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 be in this kind of argument because that's just what democracy is. You know, I, I think um, if you look at the letters over a long period of time, like we did, you know, ten thousand letters over seventy years, um, 
you, you get everything under the sun. Uh, you get people who are worried about communism. You get people who are worried about pot smoking. Um, you get worried about people that are worried about abortion. You get wor- people that are concerned about women's rights. Uh, so you get everything. Uh, and so it's uh, the, the book, you know, lays out this 70 year history of, of, of really powerful, tough arguments, none of which are easily solved. And in fact, that's really a, a sub-theme of the book, is that uh, the same issues that were debated at the Constitutional Convention are still being debated today. Uh, and some people could say, well, gee, what a terrible country we formed. We, we started talking about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and freedom of speech and the right to bear arms, and we haven't gotten that settled yet. What kind of a a terrible country are we in that we can't solve these problems? And, you know, the, the answer is, uh, in some ways, the problems probably aren't soluble uh, in any perfect final sense. The right to bear arms, for example, um, is seen as by most Americans as fundamental to what the country is. The right to have a, a, a say in public. Uh, and not be constrained by any kind of uh, legal force is is a powerful thing. On the other hand, guns and speech get do terrible things. They get in the way of people living together. They divide communities. Um, and so the you know, the question is, well, what are we going to do about that? And the answer, I believe, is to engage in the argument and not stop. And that's what these wonderful letter writers do. They refuse to stop. They're going to be engaged in the argument because they care that much. Um, <clears throat> knowing all the while, probably, that their point of view is never going to be the absolute answer. And yet they can't keep themselves away from being part of the, the active body politic. And that, to me, is what creates my hope for the the, uh, United States. The book is Civic Hope, How Ordinary Americans Keep Democracy Alive, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much, Roderick Hart, for being on New Books and Politics. It was a pleasure.